<laughs> Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the Send Mums Career Club, a podcast exploring the highs and lows of trying to climb the career ladder whilst raising children with complex or additional needs. My name is Lisa Miller. I'm a journalist with three children. My eldest daughter Beatrix has a condition called Kabuki syndrome. She's under various medical and therapeutic specialists and attends a SEN school. Every week, I'm joined by a different guest to discuss work and ambition through the lens of special needs parenting. Today, I'd like to introduce Lizzie Parsons, AKA the business organization queen, an online business manager who runs Start Small, Plan Big. Pre-children, Lizzie spent 13 years as a civil servant. She has one child, an 11-year-old daughter, Melody, who has two genetic deletions and an umbrella diagnosis of autism. This incorporates dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, and as Lizzie herself puts it, just all of the things. Lizzie, welcome. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to see where our conversation takes us today, as I know you have a lot of the things to say. Hi. Um, yeah, I've got plenty to say. So you'll have to just sort of reel me in if I get too much on my high horse. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, there'll be no reeling required, I'm sure. So tell me, what did work look like for you before Melody was born? And how were you feeling in your career? So before I had Melody, I was delivering two people's roles, uh, which is not unusual in the civil service. I was, you know, climbing the ladder. I was doing all of the things that I thought to myself, you know, this is what this is what my life is going to look like. I'm going to kind of get to this point and I'm going to do all the things. Um, I felt really, you know, secure in my career. I felt like I was making it before I had Melody. Yeah, I think I think um, I can definitely relate to that to that feeling when you're sort of feeling on top mm -hmm. of your game, you know, it's all to play for, you're winning. Um, yes, and then there's then there's a bit of a rude awakening. <laughs> I think for all women, to be fair, for all women who have children, isn't isn't it? Um, it's true. Um, so how, how and when did things change after Melody was born? Did you go back after maternity leave? Yes, because I was completely decrepit. <laughs> during pregnancy I was a mess uh, so I had to start my maternity leave early but I still like had a, a whole year off which I was really fortunate to do um, but and when I went back I was ready to go back you know I was like it's gonna be great I'm just gonna pick up where I left off oh naive naive little me but here we are and I was gonna be super mummy and super working human and it was all going to be great then it was quite obvious that I wasn't necessary it wasn't necessarily going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be um I'd kind of imagined what that was going to look like and it that was not reality and was that because of Melody's needs or because the system was wrong um I think I think initially I just hadn't factored in how difficult it was going to be, like working full time and having a child. And then as it became more and more obvious that Melody was not quite like the other babies, it then kind of started to dawn on me that actually I wasn't going to be able to be just a parent. So most parents get to be just a parent. Now, this is not me kind of taking away from the overwhelming like list of things that you have to do as a parent. But I thought that that was going to be my biggest challenge. That ended up being almost like pushed to the side completely. Mm. Um, and I almost, you know, for a long time, I stopped parenting. And all I was actually doing was arguing with people about the support that my child needed, uh, chasing people up, sending emails, ringing people's secretaries, um, you know, standing in a therapist, advocating, you know, I started doing all of these things um, 
that were not parenting at all. <laughs> and that was actually my main challenge. Yeah. Yes. And whereabouts, because I think our, our experiences were a bit similar in that you didn't get the diagnosis for Melody straight away, did you? And I was the same with Beatrix. Um, it was just that her development wasn't the same as the other children. You know, mm-hmm. she was missing milestones. She had lots of sort of little medical issues that seem to be unconnected you know that aren't necessarily to do with an underlying genetic condition she has hip dysplasia you know she had a small cardiac issue she had um, an issue with her ears there were a few little bits and pieces that could have just been Mm -hmm. you know coincidentally separate and we were we were hoping that that was the case because what are the odds of it being a rare genetic condition you know my goodness they're rare of course of course it's not going to be that that's not our child we haven't you know that's hereditary like there's nothing like that in our family you know we all go through these these processes um so it was a, a long time before we got the the diagnosis for Beatrix. So that's quite a different um, situation to find yourself in, isn't it? In terms of your social mm-hmm. circle, in terms of work, because it's not it's not like from the get go, like you know, we've had a scan and found out our child has Down syndrome or something. Um, it's it's different. The best way to describe it is you have a baby everything is fine. Like you get told by the doctor, yep, all fingers, all toes, everything is fine. Well done, parents, congratulations, off you go into the world. And then you get into the world and you're like, oh, well, my baby doesn't do that. Or well, my baby doesn't do that. Well, my baby doesn't do that. And as that starts to happen, you start to become removed from the experiences that everybody else seems to kind of be having because when you go to like, um, you know, parenting groups or you go and get the baby weighed with the health visitor, everybody else kind of just comes away with a happy little, well done, the baby's gaining weight, off you go, tra-la-la. Whereas the health visitor, you know, it literally started probably for us about week four. And again, you only realise it when you look back But all of these tiny things, like you say, that were kind of almost just random oddities, the further down that road you go, the more things start to make sense. And when you start to kind of get all of these diagnoses and they start to knit together, the picture that you have of your child, so the, you know, baby that you had, which was like, all things, all sparkly, all wonderful, becomes a completely different thing. And I, I find it interesting where you talk about, you know, your child um, not being able to participate in the activities mm-hmm. with the mummy groups, you know, and, and for you as well, because it's that's very difficult, isn't it, for us when our children can't keep up, when they can't do the things um, that the other children are doing. And that I, I remember very clearly being invited to a lovely sort of coffee afternoon um, at the house of one of the women in my NCT group. And everybody was there with their babies. The babies must have been about five mm-hmm. months, four or five months maybe. Um, and they're all kind of sitting up, you know, they were sitting up. There was all these cute little, there was little play mats, like the little nests, loads of toys. They're sort of sitting up, they're grabbing at things. And I remember just going in with B and one, she mm. was so tiny, but also she just didn't have anywhere near their strength and she didn't have anywhere near their like compulsion to get stuff, to get up. She just didn't have that. And you, there's nothing that you can do to give them that if they don't have it for themselves, is there? And I just, I look back on this afternoon and you know, everyone was so lovely. And I put B in this like little bumbo type seat and she was just so wobbly, even though it was so supportive. And I look back on that and it's a really difficult memory for me because I remember just feeling frustrated and I remember feeling sad and I remember Mm -hmm. feeling disappointed. Like, this isn't me. Like, I'm so good at everything. Like, I'm not good at motherhood here. Like, my baby is the one that's not doing the things. Like, what, what am I doing wrong? Or what is wrong with her? Like, it was just such an awful moment um a really really difficult moment and I found then after that that I really withdrew from Mm -hmm. joining in with that group you know I'd respond to the whatsapps and I'd send some nice pictures but 
well, one, we couldn't really go to soft play or do any of that stuff because she just couldn't. But also, I found it difficult for me to mm-hmm. not be the person who was in control of it and have, you know, have the child I thought I was going to have. It's a very, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to admit, isn't it? But I think it's, imp- I do think it's important that we talk about these kind of difficult emotions that come with that. So, you know, that sense of isolation, like you say, these are difficult things to deal with. And what we should be doing is having a community around us to help us. But actually what we do is isolate. I think for me, the the kind of compulsion to isolate is partly in that, um, it's partly in that um, sort of shame and embarrassment space, but it's also partly in the, this is me burying my head in the sand. Like I can see that something isn't quite right, but I'm not prepared to admit that something isn't quite right. I'm not prepared to say that me as this, you know, high performing, high delivering, you know, exceptional person that I have a child who can't like actually hold her head up. And, you know, you know, similarly to your daughter, Melody literally did not have enough strength in her core to hold her head up. It was like her head was a bowling ball and she just sort of like flopped over to the front. And I have so many photographs of her just sort of sat up, like leaning over. And I, you know, when she when she was tiny and I was taking these photographs, I was like, oh, look how cute she is with her big bowling ball head. And then I was just, but then I would show these photographs to the specialist and the specialist was like, yeah, we need to talk about this because this is absolutely not uh, what should be happening here. You know, on your point of isolation, that the inability to um, kind of be able to say, oh, my child is doing all the things. Um, it was just easier not to go because when people would say, oh, is your baby doing X, Y, Z thing? You, the answer was immediately no. And it was just therefore easier not to go. And when people would ask about how the baby's doing, oh, everything is fine. Um, how are you doing? Oh, everything is fine. And it was that everything is fine that would become more and more high-pitched and more and more hysterical. But I think the thing is, because everybody else had NT children, nobody noticed. Mm. Um, and that's the thing unless you're in it, you're kind of like, oh yeah, she's fine. Everything is fine for her. She's totally fine. Um, And that is the part of the isolation that I think is so damaging for all of us because the less you talk about it, the more you kind of put on yourself and the more you make yourself feel like you're failing, like you're not meeting, you know, you're not meeting the standard, that you're not kind of, you're not doing mothering right. Um, And that causes you to hide even more. And that's really, that's really tough. Yes, it is. And that's, you know, the emotional side of things. You've already talked about how much extra the the practical side of things Mm -hmm. affects us as well. So to go back to when Melody was little and, you know, you were noticing this this pulling away from the group you're still trying to drug, juggle a full-time job at this point is that right yeah yeah and how how did it come about that that you realized that you needed to make a change there I think quite honestly it took a long time it took a long long time um so for Melody I just added it to my list you know, I've, as a person, I perceive myself to have a pretty significant capacity. And all I did was go, okay, fair enough. What I'm going to stop doing is I'm going to stop doing anything for myself. I'm going to stop looking after myself. I'm going to not do my hobbies. I'm not, I'm going to not do my fitness. And by taking that slice out of my life, I was then able to actually meet Melody's needs. 
So I completely stopped meeting my own needs and I was meeting her needs. And that pretty much uh, has gone on, I would say, until January of this year. Wow. It has been a long, it has been a long road. And I think the thing is, going to SEN Tribunal was kind of the turning point for me because that was the first time that I had um, people who were in a professional capacity advocating on Melody's behalf. So I could actually start to take a bit more of a back step and it wasn't all on me. The demand wasn't all there for me to, to kind of meet. And it was just like, oh, okay. So now I don't have to do all of this. I I could maybe go to a class. I could maybe get my sewing machine out. I could maybe, I could maybe. And that has been a wonderful, it has been a wonderful change to my existence, but it's taken a very long time to get there. Um, and obviously working full time alongside doing all of those things, it just meant that there there was no time for me. I just didn't, I didn't have capacity to look after myself and, you know, advocate for Melody. You mentioned uh, Send Tribunal for Melody. Tell me more about that. So Send Tribunal, the best way to describe that is the most stressful process I have ever been through. Now, the reason it is so stressful is because it is very high stakes. You understand that the decision made by that tribunal will affect your child, not just now, but for the rest of their life. And knowing how critical that that, knowing how critical that thing um, will be for your child is a level of pressure that um, you can't necessarily prepare yourself for. And we went into that process, you know, we we decided to go down the litigation route. We got a solicitor, um, sorry, a team of solicitors who were incredible. And I chose those solicitors very specifically because both of them have special needs children. And so not only were they professionals and highly experienced and qualified, but they understood what it felt like to be in this situation. And I just, you know, whenever they went into anything for us, it was very obvious that Melody was top of their mind and getting her the level of support and care that she needs was absolute priority number one. And they took it personally. And that for me was so, was such a gift because having that level of support meant that they got the right specialists in to assess Melody. And the level of detail in those reports, I have never seen anything like it. And I've seen a lot of reports on Melody, but it was just, it was, um, it was just something else entirely. And having that level of detail in those reports and having those specialists to be able to kind of go back and question and understand things has given us an understanding of Melody that we just didn't have. And, you know, one of the things, for example, that the specialist was talking, was kind of um, identified is that Melody has a, a slower than average processing speed. So that means when you ask Melody a question, you have to give her time to think about it. Now, this is something we had noticed as parents, but we genuinely just thought she wasn't listening to us. We just thought, well, she's not, she's not listening. So we would repeat the question. Whereas now we ask the question, we count to five and by five, she's always got an answer. And for us, that is a complete, we would never have had that. We would never have had that without that specialist. And the tribunal itself, 
um, was all online. So it was completely not what we were expecting. We were like expecting to have to turn up at court and all of these things. And it actually didn't last very long because our solicitors were so on it that the local authority basically folded and were like, yeah, you can have all the things that you want, um, which was fantastic for us. Um, you know, it was, I'll make no bones about it. It was a very significant investment for our family. Um, and we were very fortunate to have had the financing to make that happen. Um, I think the thing that Tribunal kind of made very clear to us is that if you don't have that level of financing in place, you basically don't get what you deserve for your child. And I think that was a really sobering moment for us because we see so many children who need to be assessed, who need a you know more appropriate support and they just cannot access it because their families don't have that financing. Um, and I just feel like that level of unfairness is very, like I, I feel that very strongly. And it is something that I rail against um, significantly because everybody else's child gets to have an education. But if your child has special needs, your child gets an education if you can afford to fight for it. Like that shouldn't be a thing. Um, and it's just incredibly sad. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a short break. Before we go into part two of the show, I'd like to give a shout out to our sister podcast, Baby on the Brain. Join Stylist Magazine's Felicity Thistlethwaite as she takes a mainstream look at the big parenting issues from finding your identity after children to combating sleep deprivation. It's an informative listen packed with expert views, lively debate and laugh out loud moments. Discover Baby on the Brain from Stylist Magazine wherever you get your podcasts. How do Melody's conditions impact her and how does that affect your day-to-day? So Melody, I describe it as um, when when the universe was handing out additional needs, Melody just went, do you know what? I'm going to just keep getting back in this queue. And then she'd get to the front, get something else and go, you know what? I enjoyed that queue so much. I'm going to go back around again. Uh, So that is how I describe, you know, Melody. And Melody has um, what is referred to as a, a complex profile in that she has a number of different um diagnoses some of which are kind of disparate some of which overlay each other um and because of that we've learned to parent melody through trial and error completely through trial and error um and how that affects her day to day is about um how we approach her in the morning for example um so she's kind of getting now she's 11 the hormones are starting to come upon her. And the child that I had, which was all kind of like hair bows and Barbie dolls is now, you know, attitude and shouting. (laughs) Uh, So going into her in the morning is like, oh, you've got a shield. You're like, hello, hello, are you okay in there? How are you feeling this morning? And you kind of have that conversation. And, you know, for her, that getting up in the morning can go go one of two ways. It's either fine or it's horrendous. Like there is no in between. And so on the mornings when she is fine, we're like, yes, we're singing. Everything is great. We're getting ready and I'm getting her out the door. On the mornings when it doesn't go so great um she will protest strongly about being rushed about having her teeth brushed about which toothpaste she's going to use why she isn't going to wear x thing because it's you know scritchy scratchy as she would describe it um she doesn't want to cope 
she would prefer to have wellies. <laughs> Honestly, it's just, it's absolute carnage some mornings with her. And I find myself, um, one of my current coping strategies, because she doesn't have the emotional language or capacity to understand that what how she behaves has a very strong impact on the way that my day feels. She doesn't have capacity for that. And because she's noise sensitive, we are really like focused about not raising voices and not yelling and things like that. So my current coping strategy and my neighbors see me do this on a regular basis. Um, and I don't care. Like when it first happened, I was like, oh God, the neighbors are going to think I'm a complete lunatic, but I don't care anymore. Um, I literally get her in the car. She's physically wrestling with me. I'm like giving her like this, get in the car, strapping her in, close the door. And then I stand behind the car where she can't see me and I scream, but with no sound. And at that point, once I've done that a couple of times and the neighbours are all going, oh God, here she goes again. Um, I get in the car and I'm like, right, Melody, let's have a wonderful drive to school. Let's have a great day. And I, you know, I bring all the sunshine at that point because I've like just blown my top, but where she can't see me. <laughs> And we get to school and then she's like, la, 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 da, de, da, da, da. Um, and she turns up and, you know, she is, she's, she's on then. And the teacher will be like, so how's this morning been? And I was like, it's been horrendous. Goodbye. 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 <laughs> um, and Melody's very honest because the teacher might say, oh, you know, like her TA might say, oh, have you been a bit tricky for your mummy this morning? And she'll be like, yes, I have. And in she'll walk to school as if it's like nothing, you know? And so that is, that's my, that is my start of the day. And it is very kind of like, it's fine or it's horrendous. And mm. when I talk to other people, that that's like the start of my day. Other people are like, how are you? but you turn up to work and you're so smiley and joyful and positive and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, because that is normality for me. Hmm. Like if I, if I turned up to work every day in the mood that Melody's left me with, I would not cope with life. So I have to, do you know what I mean? You have to process these things. You have to, you know, move on with life and you've just got to go, you know what, today was not great, but it's fine because I know that she's going to have a great day at school today because she's like offloaded it all before she's gone there. Oh, good times. Good times. <laughs> um, it's so important though, isn't it, to reset mm -hmm. and to recognise that it is difficult you know, I love that strategy. I'm definitely going to do that. And I'm sure your neighbours would have something more to say about it if it was an actual <laughs> scream and not a silent scream. I think, I think they probably don't mind it all that. Um, but just th recognising that, you know what, this has been a difficult morning. I need to take that minute to reset myself mm -hmm. because otherwise it can just continue to spiral. It is what it is. We're going to pause here. Everybody's you know, where they need to be, Melody's in the car. For me, it's like bees on the bus, like my other kids are where they need yeah. to go. I'm making my cup of coffee. For me, that's the meditation, mm -hmm. you know, like making the cup of coffee in the morning when everybody's out of the house. I work from home, so then it's a nice quiet house. Mm -hmm. Make my cup of coffee, you know, sit down at my laptop, switch on, and that is like a moment of bliss yes. <laughs> really for me. It really is, you know. Um and you, you know, I have friends who say, I don't know how you work, you know, with with everything that's going on. And I'm like, oh my goodness, work is self-care for me. You know, it's... if I didn't have that moment, I don't know what I would I don't know how I would cope. I don't I think it's work is like a it's it's a break, I suppose, is probably the best way to put it because hmm. you can set aside all of the things that you are worrying about, 
kind of all of the things on your big giant list of like, I must do this, I need to contact so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And you actually just get on with work, you focus on that thing, you deliver the thing. So you can then say, do you know what? Even though I have failed entirely at parenting this morning, I have delivered a thing today. I can say I've had at least one success. So I'm going to take that gold star and I'm just going to, I'm just going to enjoy it for five minutes. Um, and that's the thing that that's what work does for me. It gives me a space to kind of just, it gives me a space to flex being myself, you know? And I think that is such a, um, that's such an important thing and I think if I hadn't have carried on working through this process I think I would have entirely withdrawn from society I feel that very strongly when I first emailed you Lizzie about this podcast I was kind of wowed by your response because you wrote I never meet women like me and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to start the send mums career club was to bring us together you told me that most of the special needs mums, you know, that you meet aren't in work. So it's difficult for them to relate to these very particular challenges we find ourselves in um, at this intersection of career and carer. I always find it amazing. There's just one letter difference and all the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, those those in work who aren't parent carers, you know, th they can't understand the challenges either. Um I found an interesting stat the other day, which was that recent research by the Disabled Children's Partnership found that 97% of parents with a disabled child do not believe the public understands the challenges they face every day. Now, that is, that is a sobering number. You know, we've talked about how important it is for you to, to be working. Have you ever needed to take a break or considered it? Ooh, um... Now, when I was in it, I was like, I'm doing fine. I'm making the things happen. I'm great. It's all good. Um, I look back and there are at least two occasions when I should have taken a break. And I didn't. I plowed on through. So the first time would have been, should have been, when Melody was initially diagnosed. So she had her genetics diagnosis around about age four. And during that time, because obviously I didn't have enough stress in my life, uh, my husband and I decided to buy our first home. So whilst we were in the process of buying our first home, I, honestly, what was I thinking? Um, we were going through what they refer to as a multidisciplinary assessment. And so for those of you that don't know what a multidisciplinary assessment or an MDA is, effectively, it is a process over a period of like days where lots of different specialists will see your child, assess your child. And then at the end of the kind of week or whatever it is, they will then kind of give like a joint um, decision on you know where your child is what what um, issues they're having what um, specialist requirements they therefore have and then what kind of therapies they they need so we were kind of in the run-up to that MDA at the exact same time as our daughter um, as buying a house and so what happened was we got our daughter's genetic diagnosis um, on the Wednesday and then we completed on our house on the Friday. Um, wow. And honestly, at the time, I thought I was going to completely collapse in on myself. I genuinely did. But it was like, well, it's fine. Like I'm still standing. So everything is fine and I can just keep going. Uh, the second time um, was when we were going through the process of getting Melody's first EHCP. Um, so for those of you that don't know, um, an EHCP is an education and healthcare plan. And that document pretty much 
is the bit of paper that says my child has the following needs. This is how all of those needs are going to be supported and is effectively the kind of roadmap that will be followed for your child in order to support them from getting wherever they are to the next stage of where we kind of expect them to kind of get to. Um, so doing that is a huge undertaking because, you know, as a parent, although you are not necessarily deemed to be the specialist in this conversation you are fundamentally a specialist in your child and so all of the reports that come in you have got to read them you've got to understand what's being said in them you know a lot of the term and like terms and terminology that's used you know you've got to actually go and start researching this stuff yourself because what goes into those reports goes into that EHCP and it has a it will have a defining fact, kind of defining impact on what support your child gets, when, how much, and then what you can expect that support to actually deliver for your child. So, yeah, that that process was just a blur for me now as I look back on it because my life was so busy at the time, and I was doing this obviously on top of working and. I think if I had, if I'd been uh, more accepting of how difficult this is, I would have said to myself, do you know what? You don't need to do both. Like just because you can, that doesn't mean you should. And for me, those are the two kind of times when I've really thought to myself, this would have been easier if you just didn't try to do everything. Mm. Uh, for, for most of us, I'm sure, certainly for me as well, you know, the paperwork, the, mm. the requirement, like you say, to understand complex medical reports. And, you know, again, this is something that people who aren't in this world wouldn't necessarily understand, is that all the medical specialists are just that. They are specialists in the bit that they are a specialist in. They aren't specialists in... the the whole of your child you know and all of these things come together in just such a unique way in this unique little person and as you say you are the specialist in your child um it is just such a lot um it's you know there's an emotional load around it there is the practicalities around the time it takes to get these assessments and you know it's just such a lot isn't it it is such a lot it is i describe myself from about age one and a half to literally now, I describe myself as my daughter's secretary because the level of admin that I have to do for my child, if I paid somebody for that, it would be a full-time job. And I think that is one of the big parts of being a parent carer that people don't see. We are having much more of a conversation um, collectively about, um, you know, special needs parenting and the um, level of pressure, the level of time, the level of financing it takes to support your child adequately. That is now starting to become a mainstream topic, which for me, I think is absolutely incredible. And we need more of that kind of conversation but really it's the paperwork that is actually one of the most challenging parts and I have like two lever arch A4 folders for Melody and that is only because I've summarized things if I hadn't summarized things I would probably have a lot more paper than that and one of the things that I did that was a game changer for me, and this is part of my kind of organization brain kicking in, is I created a summary sheet and I just added stuff into that summary sheet. And it was like, you know, the day, who we saw, what did they say? What's the next steps? What are their contact details? And that 
is now 16 pages for Melody. And that for me is the place that I go to when I get asked questions, you know, when was her surgery? When did she have grommets? When did you see this person? When was the last time this happened? That is the thing I go to because every time I got asked the question, I was like trying to rifle through all of these bits of paper and it was just causing me such a level of stress. I was like, there has to be a better way to do this. And so that summary sheet is like gold to me and I still use it now and I will continue to use it probably forever and ever uh, <laughs> because I think we're gonna be having these fights quite probably forever and ever. Um, so yeah, kind of getting myself organized with all of that paperwork changed, it, it changed my life. Um, the other thing that I did, which my husband laughed at me for, but I was like, listen, I'm tired of having this conversation. I basically did a medical history, um, a bullet point medical history. And because our local hospital is a very large teaching hospital, because Melody has um, a rare and then also a unique deletion, it was almost like, ooh, send all the just students, come in students, come and see these, this child. She is an oddity. Um, so literally I would be like handing out my little sheets of paper to all these student doctors. Um, and <laughs> the specialist that saw me in A&E was like, oh my God, I've never seen this before. And I said, listen, this is the easiest thing that I can do for myself so that everybody has the history. And I said, for your students, here's a copy, photocopy if you want to, for your notes, whatever you want to do, you crack on. And for me, it was like, this is the easiest thing I can do for myself so that nothing gets forgotten, but I don't have to stand here every couple of weeks and go, this is Melody. She was born at so-and-so amount of days. She had this when she was born. She had that. We then had this, blah, blah, blah. You haven't got to keep going through it. And the specialist looked at me, he looked at my little sheet and he went, do you want a job? (laughs) And I I said, I'll be honest, the NHS is actually beyond my capability. Like, I think I'm good, but even I can't deal with this. This is like a hot mess. Um, And (laughs) so we all had, we all had a little bit of a giggle over that. Um, But yeah, the, the paperwork is a massive thing for us. It can be very overwhelming, I think. And I think that's the bit that is hard because nobody sees that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I always think this kind of thing comes easily to me. You know, I have an English degree, like Mm -hmm. I'm quite confident in my written English, you know, in in speaking to people, it's my job. Um, My husband's got the same job. He's equally capable, you know. And we find it very difficult to to do these forms and have these conversations. And I just always think, how how does anybody do this? You know, how does anybody do this? Like, it it should be easy for us and it's very difficult for people who find these things difficult to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so difficult and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be so difficult. I think we have a lack of... <sighs> Now, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to get on my little soapbox now. But it feels very strongly to me that the system is set up in a way that it's almost impossible to get anything out of it. And in order to get anything out of it, you have to be prepared to take your mental and physical health right to the edge and sometimes over that edge in order to get the level of support that your child actually requires. And I think that is a that is a losing formula for parents across the board. And I think the only the only thing that wins um, is the treasury because by making it as 
difficult as possible to get anything out of the system, most people give up. And that's what they're counting on. They are counting on you giving up and just going, this is too hard, I cannot cope. And then you don't get whatever it is your child requires and they get to go, hooray, we didn't spend the money. Yeah. And I would agree with you. For me, I am a naturally organized person. I love organizing things. Um, and whenever I see any level of like chaos with paperwork, I'm like, oh, I cannot, I cannot. So I'm like, do this, doing all the things, tra la la. And then like my husband is just like, I don't understand how you've done this. What, what, what? Because I'll have things, you know, and then there'll be like links to to where the document is and, you know, all of these sorts of things, right? That's me. That's how I, I like to have stuff super organized because I feel like that is me doing the thing that I'm supposed to do for Melody. But I know lots of um, parents who have special needs children who also have their own special needs themselves and so you are trying to fight a system which is designed to avoid you at every turn you've got to do that for your child you have to advocate but then you have to advocate for yourself in order to receive that information in a way that actually kind of is you know that you have the ability to process it and that for me is like I actually can't I genuinely cannot understand how those people do it because for me, it just feels almost insurmountable. It's like Everest and I, I just can't understand, but they do and they do it every day. And I just, I have such admiration for, for everybody in this situation because we find a way, no matter what it takes, we find a way and also um, we find the joy and the laughter. And I think that for me is one of the greatest gifts that having a special needs child has given me. It's a level of joy that I suppose other people don't necessarily get because the things that we laugh about are just not, <laughs> not the things other people laugh about. Um, <laughs> but it's wonderful. You know, it really is. You know, you mentioned that Melody is, she's 11. She's starting to come into her teenage years. Really special age for any any child. Um, how do you feel when you think about the future for her and for you as a family as well? I think when she was very tiny, I kind of looked at her and I just thought, how can this little delicate thing go out into the world and be faced with, you know, what is a pretty scary place. And that, you know, that was a really strong feeling for me. There are some significant practical things that we did. So one of the biggest things was that we we wrote our will uh, because Melody's an only child. So in writing a will and setting up a trust, we know that we've got you know, policies in place and all of these sorts of very practical things that she will be financially cared for. Fortunately, um, she has a lot of cousins who will be there to kind of support her and encourage her. And so those are kind of the practical things. I think as she gets older, we see a very stubborn side of Melody. Um, she does get that from me. I won't lie to you. Um, and because of that, I sort of feel more confident that she's going to be okay eventually. You know, that her that level of stubbornness is going to get her through some of those really big challenges. Finally, I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence. The biggest lesson raising a Sen child has taught me is? The importance of joy. I am a very driven, 
high performance, high delivery person. My entire life up to the point of having Melody was go, 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 do, 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 climb that big corporate ladder. And then I had Melody and, you know, she has zero interest. (laughs) She has zero interest in my corporate ladder and my delivering of things. She's like, (laughs) where are the snacks? Which snacks are available at this point, friend? Um, And the things that are important to her are things that, that I have to be really present for. And so having her has taught me that actually there is so much more to life than reaching the next goal, the next thing. This right here, this moment, sitting in a wildflower meadow and watching some bees busily work around. Those are like moments of joy, going to the theater, watching a musical, smelling a flower. These are like real things that I would have missed entirely in my life if I hadn't have had Melody. And so I am grateful to her every single day because life would have just rushed past me if I hadn't have had her. That's so lovely. Thank you, Lizzie. That's all for this episode. Special thank you to my guest, Lizzie Parsons. You are officially now part of the Sen Mums Career Club. If you want to be part of the club too, join us on social media and share your story. You can find us at Sen Mums Career on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn or use the hashtag Send Mums Career. We're new here in the podcast space and I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode. Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. And of course, come back next time.